So anyway, welcome. We're glad that you're here. As you make your way back to your seat, uh, let me just remind you that we are beginning a six to eight week series uh, in the book of Jude. It's a little letter. Uh, And so if you have um, a Bible, you're welcome to turn to Jude. Uh, There are also these available. These are uh, scripture journals and they're available on the back bar area. If you would like a copy of these, uh, it's just a recommended price of three dollars. Uh, if you don't have three dollars, but you want one, I don't care. Just take one. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not my money. It's the Lord's money, and uh, so you can have one of these if it's going to help you. Basically, it's the text of Jude with uh, blank pages, so that you can take notes throughout the sermon series and uh, write down your observations and thoughts and applications. Uh, some people write best by or learn best by writing, and if that's you you're welcome to have one of these uh, copies of the the book of Jude. Let's pray together, and uh, and then we're going to read the book of Jude, the the entire letter. If you have to ask what chapter it is, uh, then you fail Christianity. You have to go back from the very beginning. It's only one chapter, uh, 25 verses, and um, so we're going to read the book of Jude in its entirety every week. And as a personal challenge for for me, and for me, from me to you, I'm going to invite you to memorize the book of Jude with me. Uh, I've been working hard uh, to memorize the book of Jude, and so I want to invite you to do that with me. Uh, It's my goal that by the sixth or seventh week uh, through this sermon series to be able to recite it, and uh, and I would love for you to join me in that challenge. Um, It's uh, 25 verses, but it's 25 chunky verses. There's a lot to the book of Jude. So with that in mind, let me say a prayer for us, and then we will read this passage together. Sorry. I get distracted? Maybe I did. Maybe I just lost my train of thought for a second. It's my fault. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together as a congregation of Christ followers, those who are committed to biblical community and to walking in love, to bearing one another's burdens, to praying for one another, to serving one another, to encouraging one another, to building one another up in the most holy faith, to uh, strengthening one another, and as iron sharpens iron, that we may sharpen one another. And we thank you that you long to do this in the context of biblical community, that you use your word to speak to us as we engage in it and hear it in the context of believers. We thank you that you have called us together to walk together, to worship together, to pray together, to grieve together, to serve one another, to confront one another in love, uh, and to call each other out when we see each other not following your word and not following your ways and not walking with you. We thank you that it is in the the context of this community of Christ followers that you are sanctifying us. That is, you are making us more and more like Jesus Christ through all of our trials. We sang sovereign, that you are sovereignly allowing circumstances and trials and difficulties and circumstances into our life. And you are using those like sandpaper to rough, uh, shave off the rough edges of our lives and to make us more and more in your image. We thank you that you're committed to that. Philippians 1.6 says that... Um, that Uh, You will make us, uh, you who began a good work in us will finish it to completion. That you, this is a lifelong project for you, Jesus. And for those like myself, we need a lifetime to be made in your image. 
We pray that you would use your word today for that purpose, that it would sanctify us completely and that it would make us more and more like you so that as the culture and the world around us darkens, they may see us as salt and light and shining like stars against this cultural backdrop. We pray that people would often mistake us for you, Jesus. That when they see us, they would say, there is something in you that reminds me of Jesus. The way you care, the way you love, your gentleness, your mercy, your grace, your commitment to truth, and the way in which you love people. Let it be said of us that we reflect you as you work in us to accomplish your purposes. Now as we approach the word of Jude, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make yourself known, that you would convict us by your Holy Spirit, that you would show us ourselves in your word as it is a mirror. Help us to make application that you uh, lead us to and that we may, might be obedient to you as we hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I don't do this all the time, but I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the Word together. Uh, we're going to read in the book of Jude. Uh, we're going to read all 25 verses, and so you stand and let's read together. The Word of God says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, you can see that pound for pound, right, a, a term used when we compare boxers in different weight classes and wrestlers in different weight classes, that Jude is power-packed, potent, dense, rich truth that spans from Adam to Jude's present writing day, which might have been around 70, 72, somewhere in there, A.D., about 30 years, 40 years after Jesus was ascended. Uh, a very important letter, and let me describe why I've chosen to spend a few, um, a month or so in the book of Jude. One of the reasons that we're in Jude is it's an often overlooked book. It's 25 verses and maybe even hard to find. Uh, you might have had to look in your table of contents and try to find it. Uh, it's not one that is in uh, regular um, cycles for people in reading. So why, why the focus on this letter? Well, the focus on this letter uh, has a couple of reasons, but one of them is, is that one of the greatest dangers the church faces at all times is from within. You've heard it said that persecution and outward attacks on Christianity and on the church and on the gospel and on you as believers, that an outward attack often spreads the gospel. It often spreads the church. Pure uh, persecution spreads the gospel and spreads the church. You just read Acts, the first 10 chapters of Acts, and you see that what began in Jerusalem in an upper room, through heavy persecution, actually spread the gospel to uh, all of Jerusalem. It's, uh, it says that all of Jerusalem is filled with your teaching, and that many priests and many people, the believers and the disciples are being multiplied. So the, the more there are attacks from outside the church and outside from our culture, it often proves to spread the gospel and to strengthen the church and to purify the church. We often see that in our own culture. Matter of fact, the day that we merged together from Rock Hill to Ridgeline, the week we were about to meet for the first time, someone came in and graffitied all over our church satanic messages attacking us. And... It fortified us as a body of believers. We came together and we scrubbed those and we counted ourselves in some way 
blessed and worthy to suffer, that the enemy had taken notice of what God was doing among us in our fellowship. And we sort of lovingly cleaned the graffiti off. I still have these pictures of all the graffiti, and occasionally I'll look at it, and I'll say, thank you, Lord, for allowing us to suffer. See, persecution from outside, it strengthens us, and it fortifies us, it encourages us, it helps us grow, it purifies the church. The people who are sort of cultural hangers-on that aren't necessarily true Christ followers, the moment persecution amps up, they often scatter. But the, the body of Christ is often purified. But throughout Christianity, attacks from within, that's what's devastating. Um, you, you might remember those big old camcorders. You remember the big things that you have to put on your shoulder and you chunk a big VHS tape in it and right, clunk that through. And we had one of those. And in ninth grade, we had to do a project. We had to out, um, act out Julius Caesar, the Shakespeare Julius. You remember the Shakespeare Julius Caesar play? And, you know, back in those days, like, what eighth or ninth grader has an editing system? You had to do it all in one take, or you had to rewind the tape and show it all over again. We had to do it four times, me and a handful of kids in my high school, because we couldn't stop laughing at the very end. Like, scene three, you know, we kept giggling when Marcus was attacking Julius Caesar, and he had to turn, and in the most dramatic way we could say, is that too brute? And my friend just kept laughing, and you would see the camcorder shaking, and we had to keep, oh, we got to rewind it again, and show it over again, as we had to start all over and do the whole play over again. And finally, we just had to play the um, unedited version in class, and it was just, it's a funny memory for us. But it reminds us of that moment in Julius Caesar when attacked by senators, he turns around and sees his friend Marcus Brutus stabbing him and says, et tu, Brute, even you, Brutus, you also, my friend, are going to also attack me and stab me? The attack was unexpected. He thought Brutus had his back. They were shoulder to shoulder against the enemies, and he turned around and his own friend attacked him. He never saw it coming. Attacks in the church feel like that. Oftentimes you're facing an enemy out there and you look around inside and who you think are those who are shoulder to shoulder, back to back, praying with you, fighting with you, suffering with you, working with you. Oftentimes the most painful attacks happen within the body of Christ from those who we thought were among us in faith. I remember back to the days when we started uh, Ridgeline. Undoubtedly, Rock Hill itself faced cycle after cycle after cycle of attacks within. But it was cemented in my own mind when we started Ridgeline as a church in 2012, meeting in uh, the Watson's house. I still have the notes. I review them occasionally. In our core team training, uh, we had an exercise where we were asking and trying to determine how many people would we pray that the Lord would bring in. And as we're sort of filtering out and making these lists of people that we're praying for and ministering to, the realization hit us that in some ways, not every, we don't want everyone to be a part of the church. And what, do you th what, what do you mean, Gibson? Why, why wouldn't you want everyone to be a part of the church? It's the biblical understanding that Jesus said the enemy will plant weeds among the wheat. 
it's biblical understanding that when Paul is facing the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in and they will attack. It's Paul writing to Timothy saying that those who were once among you have gone out from you and false teachers and all these people infiltrating the church is a danger within. That's why Jude is writing. But he's also writing to bolster those within the congregation, to remind them of their identity in Christ, and to appeal to them to fight for the faith. It's worth it. It's worth it for you to stand up for the gospel and to be confrontational against false teachers who would pervert the gospel and would destroy the church with sensual living and false teaching. That's why this letter has been written. Today's sermon serves as a bit of an introduction, so um, if you have a pen, I would invite you to take some notes. I'm going to go through a handful of observations as I've reflected on the whole letter, and then next week we're going to get into the text a little bit more. But today, just a few observations, and then I'll end with some encouragement about your identity in Christ. First thing I want you to see about this letter is it's theologically rich. The author knows the Bible, and he uses it well. Have you ever been around somebody who just oozes Scripture? It just flows. When they talk, you can't tell if they're quoting Scripture or if they're quoting. uh, You can just hear it in their words, in their language, that everything they say is a a Bible verse. Contrast that with other people. Sometimes I get a text and someone will say, well, I heard this advice, or I saw this on a a social media thing. Is this true? And I'll look at it and I'll say, well, I don't, don't." it doesn't remind me of not a single verse in the Bible. It's just sort of some sort of cultural nicism or inspiration inspirational fluffism, but it's not scripture. I don't know what that is. But Jude writes in such a way that scripture just flows. You have an understanding that he is saturated with the word of God. Have you ever tried to wash your car and you plunge a, a, a sponge into a bucket and once it's in there, you squeeze it and it, it fills up and is saturated. When you pull that sponge out of the water, water drips off of it. Water just overflows from it. But something happens when you squeeze it. When you squeeze it, more water flows. Listen, Christ follower, like Jude, if we are saturating ourselves with Scripture, when we're squeezed by trials and difficulties and different seasons in life, Scripture can ooze out of us, showing that we have filled our minds with the Word of God. That's what Jude is like. He has a high Christology. That means that he holds Jesus in the highest esteem. He mentions Jesus Christ, only 25 verses. He mentions Jesus Christ in verse 1, 4, 5, 17, 21, and 25. And he always honors Jesus with these magnified titles. Christ, Hamashiach, the Messiah, the Christos. He calls him the Master. He calls him Kurios, or Lord. He calls him Savior. Jude has a high vision of Jesus Christ. I remember one of the very first things to go when I became a believer. In the household I grew up in, I didn't um, honor Jesus, nor did I honor the Bible, nor did we uh, go to church, really. It was a very... um, 
irreligious sort of household. And, and oftentimes the name of Jesus was used as a curse word or a flippantly used to express disdain or disgust or shock or exclamation. It was absolutely not reverenced in any way. But one of the first things that changed when I became a believer was that I started to hold the name of Jesus in high esteem when I learned what he did for me and I received his substitution on the cross for me. And when I saw that he took my punishment, rather than viewing Jesus as a curse word, I started to take his name with reverence and in fear and with worship. Jude does that. The letter of Jude is very Trinitarian. He mentions the Spirit in verses 19 through 20. He mentions Jesus in the verses I said above. And he also mentions God the Father in verses 1, 4, 21, and 25. He has a, a full understanding of the Godhead. In order to understand Jude, it's helpful to know where he fits in the canon of Scripture. When I say canon, I don't mean canon like you stick a cannonball in a canon, but the canon meaning the accepted uh, corpus or body of scripture that has been encouraging believers for centuries. Jude fits into the Bible, into the 66 books. The, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is 66 books gathered together and carefully cultivated. Um, there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. Jude is in the New Testament. As a part of the New Testament, there are four Gospels. There is history in the book of Acts. And then there are what's called epistles. Epistles are just letters, letters that you and I might write to one another. An epistle is just a letter. Now, among the epistles, there are Pauline epistles that are, uh, that is the letters that Paul wrote to the church, uh, Romans, uh, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. Among the epistles, there are also pastoral epistles, the letters that Paul wrote to pastors and to missionaries. Those are Timothy and Titus. Uh, and then there are general epistles, general letters written by various people, Peter, John, and Jude being the general epistles. Jude fits late, late in Scripture. The last book included and written is the book of Revelation, uh, written somewhere in the 90s, that is about 60 years after Jesus was resurrected and ascended. Jude would have been written about 20 years or so before that the second to the last book, as far as we can tell. And one of the ways that we can tell that it was written late is he quotes Second Peter. He's already quoting the apostles, and Second Peter wasn't written until mid-60s to late-60s. Take a second and turn back a few pages to Second Peter, and look at chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2 will give you insight into Jude. If you want to understand 2 Jude, you, you have to understand 2 Peter. Because Jude is an occasional letter. He told you, I sat down to write to you about our common salvation, but I felt compelled to write to you about something else. What's the occasion for his writing? Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 1, Peter says, false prophets arose among the people. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's always talking about those who have attacked the body and Israel and the kingdom of God and the church from within. Peter is carrying on that conversation. So he said, false prophets arose among the people. And then Peter warns them, saying, in the future... 
There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So Peter's saying there will be. Jude says there are. They have infiltrated. Just a few years later, just a few years within Peter's writing, he's saying, watch out, church. False teachers are going to come inside the church. They're going to be sensual. They're going to boast about their freedoms in Christ and the free grace and the free forgiveness, and, and they're going to express their flesh any way they want to. And they're going to teach false doctrine, even so much as denying that Jesus even paid the price on the cross for them. Peter predicted it. Jude is the sequel, saying it's already happened. Jude is occasional. He's writing to warn them of these false teachers. I don't have time to read all of 2 Peter. Your homework is to read 2 Peter chapter 2. You will notice that the same language used in 2 Peter is picked up in Jude. 2 Peter 2, just to highlight and skim down, in verse 1 he says they deny the master. Jude said they deny the master. 2 Peter 2, he says, they will follow their sensuality and blaspheme. Jude said they are following sensuality and blaspheming. Verse 3, their condemnation and destruction is coming. Jude is saying their condemnation and destruction is nearer. Peter says God didn't spare angels, but committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Jude mentions chains of gloomy darkness twice. Um, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in Peter. Sensual conduct. Verse 9, of the day of judgment. Verse 10, they despise authority and blaspheme angels. Jude says they reject authority already. They hate an authority figure. And they blaspheme angels and talk about everything that they don't even understand. They're irrational creatures of instinct, Peter says in verse 12 of chapter 2. Jude says the same thing. He says they feast with you in verse 13. Jude says that they are right hidden reefs in your love feasts. Which love feasts were just fellowship luncheons, right? Nothing weird there. They're just, it's just a, they're just getting together for a potluck, you know? Um, that's what that feast is. But these are infiltrating into the fellowship and the fabric of the body of believers. Peter says they follow the way of Balaam. Jude says the same thing. Peter says they are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Uh, and Jude says the same thing. It's very similar. Read 2 Peter chapter 2 this week. And then read Jude and start to note the similarities. And one of the beautiful things about that, the application for us there is that Jude uses Scripture to interpret Scripture. One hermeneutical principle in your Bible reading life is that you don't bring an opinion into Scripture and read Scripture through the lens of your opinions. You view Scripture in the lens of Scripture and you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture as the highest authority. Do you understand how dangerous it is? It's called eisegesis, where you take a worldly opinion and then you come to the Scripture and you impose your opinions on Scripture rather than reading Scripture in an exegetical way where the meaning of Scripture interprets Scripture. And Scripture, you get meaning out of Scripture rather than importing your own thoughts and ideas into Scripture. I sat through a sermon 
training small group, right? All these guys would come together, talk about a crucible, right? We, you prepare a 10-minute message, and you got 30 other guys in the room, and they're just taking notes, man. Everything you say, they're taking notes, and, and then at the end, it's like a, a critique session. Very encouraging, often. <laughs> um, before the pandemic, we had this lined up. We had 25 or so men and women who wanted to be Bible teachers and Sunday school teachers and leaders in their small groups and guys who would have opportunities to preach up here. And we were going to start this sort of crucible that you preach and give your best sermon in 10 minutes up here. And then we're going to go through this sort of uh, critiquing situation with you. Well, in one of these, um, this guy that was preaching at a different place, another church, he just started to describe Jesus' death as a exemplary as uh, a, a not atoning, not a substitutionary death, but Jesus gives us just a good example of how to live um, an unselfish life. That was the pinnacle of Jesus's death on the cross was just unselfishness at its best. And that from the gospel, we should just go live unselfishly. Is that a valid point? Maybe 12 points down, but that's not the purpose of the cross. The goal was not for Jesus to demonstrate an exemplary, unselfish life, although he did that. And then his idea was that the love that Mary had for Jesus was the love that we should have. He had all these ideas. Finally, at the end, he's getting all these critiques, and I just, I just don't see the ideas that you're coming up with in Scripture but I definitely can see that you brought those ideas and imposed them on the text. That's not what that text is saying. He used a text as like a diving board. It sprung, used a text, bounced off of it into his own ideas. It's a very dangerous hermeneutical um, fallacy if people import their own secular cultural ideas onto the text. Jude has a writing style that's unique. It's like an uplifting epistle encouraging the body of believers in verses 1 through 3, 2, 3 there. And then in verses 21 through 25, very encouraging, but smack dab in the middle, it's like a judgment oracle straight out of the Old Testament. It's like a, an Old Testament prophet saying woe to them and condemnation upon these false teachers. And it's important for you to understand that Jude is condemning False teachers in the church, not just unbelievers out in the world. Jude's not angrily shaking his fist at the culture saying, those heathens out there are so terrible and sinful. And all these. Listen, never be surprised when the world acts like the world. Never be surprised when people in darkness are groping around in darkness. That deserves our compassion. Jesus looked at them, the crowd, and said they're harassed and helpless like sheep without what? Without a shepherd. And his compassionate cry was to go out into the world, to the highways and to the hedges, and compel them to come into the kingdom. Jude's message is not for the people out there. Jude's message are for those here in the room who pretend like they are Christ followers but are not, and he has scathing condemnation for those who would infiltrate the body of Christ to divide it and tear it apart and introduce false doctrine and sensuality. It's black and white, a judgment oracle in the middle. 
Jude's epistle is epic. It sweeps across the ages, summarizing the dangers of false teachers and apostates within the church. Consider the epic nature of it. In verse 14, he mentions Adam. In verse 11, he mentions Cain. In verse 14, he mentions Enoch. In verse 6, he talks about the fall of Satan. In verse 9, he talks about the body of Moses, the archangel Michael. He talks about Balaam's error. In verse 11, Korah's rebellion. In verse 11, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the exodus from Egypt. He's covering the Old Testament highlights and how false teachers have infiltrated God's people from the beginning all the way up to Jesus, all the way up to Peter, writing maybe just a few years before this. The final thing I'll say as we transition into this closing is that Jude writes as a servant of Jesus Christ, but you may also know that Jude is Jesus' brother. Jesus had brothers, in the Gospels, we learn that Jesus had four brothers. James, who wrote the book of James. Jude, whose other name was Judas. No reason why he shortened his name and went to Jude, right? Jesus had four brothers, and he had sisters. Matter of fact, his family thought Jesus was crazy. Do you remember the episode where Jesus is teaching in the house and his whole family is knocking on the door outside and the, the envoy comes in and says, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are here and they want to take him away because they didn't believe in him. They didn't believe him. They wanted to take the thought he was crazy. They wanted to take him away. But Jude and James have a conversion moment. And look at Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. He acknowledges that James is his brother, but he positions himself rightly in the identity of Christ as a servant of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus' brother, I would never buy a drink or a meal again. I would go into every restaurant. Oh, you're Jesus' brother. Come tell us stories about his childhood. Yeah, okay, I'll tell you. And if you can pay for my meal, and I'll tell you any stories you want. I would capitalize. Have you ever known brothers who try to capitalize on their other brother's, you know, reputation or information? My little brother and I had this little bit of a sibling rivalry, and everywhere we would go around town, he was working at a restaurant one time, and all these people would come up to him, oh, you're Gibson's brother. He'd say, no, he's my brother. Right? Sort of a sibling rivalry that would happen here. If I were Jude, I would capitalize on being Jesus' brother. But he's abandoned that identity and embraced a new identity in Christ. Why is that important? Because that's who he was. That's not who he is. Jude knows who he was. And his identity in Christ is different. Often people read the Bible as though they are the hero or the good guy or as though all the promises and blessings in Scripture are for them and all the struggles and convictions and sins in Scripture are for somebody else. You ever have that problem? Where you read the Psalms and he says, break the teeth of the wicked, and you're like, yeah. And he says, well, what if you are the wicked? Or if he talks about conviction or walking in sin and you say, yes, convict them. Even listening to a sermon like this, you can say, yes, for them. But the correct way to read Scripture, listen, this is not a gotcha sermon. 
you know, gotcha sermons are like, you build people up and then boom, you're the man. You're the sin. You're the false teacher. That's not how this is. This isn't the gotcha. I don't preach gotcha sermon. I didn't write this with you in mind. Okay. You just allow scripture to read you and the Holy Spirit to say, that's you. You allow Scripture to read you and the Holy Spirit to say, this is it. This is the area of your life that I'm tapping on. You need to read this letter understanding that you could be in one of two groups. Those who are redeemed in the church or those who are not and are of this false teacher, false convert group. And like Galatians 5, there are clear diagnostic characteristics that indicate which group you are in. And they each have a strong identity. We're going to get into this over the next few weeks. But let's just summarize this in closing. The identity of the false converts, verse 4, they're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God and use it as a license for sensuality. That is, they're the ones who are the quickest to say, aren't you glad for forgiveness? I can just live however I want. If I want to do this on Saturday night or Friday night or Monday morning or Tuesday afternoon, I can just live however I want. And aren't you glad for, for, for forgiveness? It's cheap grace and I can just do whatever I want and live however I want. And Jesus is always there as like a safety net to forgive me of my sins. They're ungodly people and they twist the grace of God and they make it a license a green light to live any way that they want to. He also says the false teachers and false converts deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 5, they don't believe, they don't trust, they don't have faith. He says in verse 7, they indulge in sexual immorality and pursue unnatural desire, clearly a reference to homosexual sin. He says in verse 8 that they rely on dreams rather than Scripture. They defile their flesh, that is, they give full vent to their fleshly desires. They reject all authority. They hate authority. They hate pastoral authority. They hate uh, worldly authority. They hate their bosses. They hate anybody who tells them what to do and how to live in any way. They blaspheme all that they don't know. Verse 12, they're hidden reefs. That is, they try to pretend like they're one way, but really they are like wolves in sheep's clothing. Jude says you can tell who they are because they are fruitless. They're the first ones to, verse 16, grumble. They're the first ones who express discontent, are never happy. They follow all of their own sinful desires. They're loud-mouthed boasters who are constantly telling you how great they are. They show favoritism only when it is to their own advantage, verse 16. In verse 18, they follow their own ungodly passions. Verse 19, they cause divisions. They're worldly people. And the fact that you know they're false converts are they are devoid of the Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit does not reside within them. That's one of the ways you know you're a Christ follower, Romans 8, 16. If we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us, we'll have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They have no self-control because they are devoid of the Spirit. But listen to your identity in Christ because you may have been that 
But in Christ, that's not you. Listen to your identity in Christ. And if you are in Christ today, he calls you those who are called out of the world into the kingdom in verse 1 and 2. He says over and over in this letter, you are beloved by God the Father. He says you are kept that reminds us of Jesus in John where he says, uh, no, you're in my hands and no one can snatch you out of my hands. You will persevere. You will continue because I hold you and no one can snatch you out of my hands. He says to those who are in Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That is, you will be overflowing with mercy, overflowing with peace in the midst of your tribulations and trials, and overflowing with love in the darkest of circumstances. He calls them, uh, in verse 20, beloved, those who build people up. Have you ever been around somebody who is just constantly building you up? You're around them and they encourage you and they strengthen you. and You're just like iron sharpening iron. They, they make you better and more godly and more Christ-like. They lift you up rather than pull you down. They express faith, verse 20. They are praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 20. They are those who remain and abide in the love of God. I love the ending, verses 21, 22, and 23. They wait for mercy, they have mercy, and they show mercy. You want to know the godliest people among us? They're the most merciful among us. But not so the false converts. Can you see the difference? Can you see the difference? And you look at a list like this and you say, oh, I know that so-and-so, that's them. But it's different than allowing Scripture to read us and for allowing the Holy Spirit to say, oh, Lord, I see myself there. Oh, in my flesh, that's me. Oh, I, I wish I wasn't a grumbler. I wish I wasn't a malcontent. I wish I had more self-control. I wish I wouldn't give full reign to my uh, passions. I wish I had more faith. There is a clear demarcation of the false converts among us and those who are in Christ. And the call for us in Christ is to come out among them and to, to contend for the faith, to stand up for the gospel truths that was once for all handed to the saints because it's worth it for us to protect the purity and unity in the body of Christ and to recognize that not everybody among us in the church, the big C church, not this body, right? Maybe this body, I don't know. But not everybody in the church are Christ followers and redeemed. But thanks be to God that that's who we were and our identity in Christ is new, right? And uh, think about baptism. A few weeks ago, we did a baptism. The beauty of baptism is that idea in 2 Corinthians, that 5.17, that, that, that all things are made new. That Jesus Christ purchased a people for himself from the world to, uh, so that they may die to their sin and their old way of living and raise, be raised up to walk in newness of life. That we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And that if you walk in your new identity in Christ Jesus... You are unstoppable in this world. People will look at you, and the love of Christ will overflow from you, the mercy and the grace of God. People will see you, and they will see Jesus Christ in you. I love the way the, the letter ends. Look at verse 24, and we'll close with this. 
In verse 24, Jude overflows in probably one of the greatest doxologies in Scripture. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus Christ right now, Scripture says, is interceding on your behalf to the Father. He stands on your behalf saying, Lord, look at her. Look at the way she's struggling. Would you help her? Would you strengthen her? Look at her. Don't see her sin. Look at my righteousness that I've given her because she trusts in you, because she abides in you, because she believes in you. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. That is, when God sees you, He doesn't see your sin, right? If you're in Christ, He sees you as righteous. He sees the righteousness of Christ that covers you. 1 John 1 9 says that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Your identity in Christ, you are righteous. Now, the enemy wants you to think you're terrible. He wants to remind you of all your sins and remind you of your shame and remind you of your guilt and remind you of everything wrong. But in Christ, you can be presented blameless. I love the way he says it next present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Do you know who can stand in the presence of God's glory in Scripture? Not a single person, right? The standard procedure when God's glory is revealed is face to the floor. Think of Isaiah in 6. Woe to me, I am a man undone, a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. But in Christ, you can be presented in the very presence of His glory, and Jesus says, I'm going to present you with great joy. He can't wait to introduce you to God the Father in His presence, purified, clean, and holy. Now listen, that's not a righteousness of your own. You did nothing to earn or deserve that. You understand? You think that you'd earn that sort of ability for Jesus to introduce you to the Father in the presence of His glory? And for Him to do so with great joy because of your own works? He did it because of His great love for you, and it's His great joy to do that. And verse 25, it overflows in worship to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Listen, if you grasp your identity in Christ, it will overflow in worship that rivals Revelation 5 that rivals when all the hosts of heaven are gathered together to proclaim worthy is the lamb who was slain you walk in your identity with Christ it won't be hard for you to spot those who are the false converts and the false teachers and it won't be hard for you to contend for the faith church this is what he desires of us we're going to get into it over the next few weeks what does it mean to contend for faith and how do you recognize if you are a false convert and a false teacher i didn't say your neighbor i didn't say the guy or the girl down the pew from you let scripture read you and reveal who you are father thank you for your word it is powerful, it is effective, it is able to penetrate even to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and through your word you are able to diagnose our own sins. You 
uh, Lord Jesus, are able to show us our own faults and where we all stumble. And thank you that in Christ Jesus, our refuge, a strong tower, that we may run to you and find grace and mercy and forgiveness in the day of Christ Jesus. Let us walk in such a way. Let us walk in such a way within this biblical community that we understand mercy, we understand grace, we understand love, but we also understand that within the church are the greatest attacks. People who live any way they want to, turning the grace of Jesus into a license for immorality. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hate even the garments defiled by the flesh to walk in such purity and holiness that we shine like stars. In Jesus' name, amen.